Another little mobile indoors episode while I get myself and Batty ready for a walk. But, uh, yeah, there was a shooting at the protest in Olympia. You know, I mentioned last night how there was going to be a, a protest where anti-mask, anti-vackers were going to be protesting those mandates, which naturally makes it a right-wing event because that's become a platform for the right-wing just as other platforms are more left-wing, you know, it's just how it is. But I mentioned how Antifa was planning a counter-protest, and sure enough, they did come, and it resulted in a shooting, which has become commonplace. You know, there was that Portland protest a month ago that ended up in a shootout. But you don't even see it. Like, it, it, it's it's barely in the news at this point. And, and we've gotten so used to these conflicts resulting in shootings and violence, and it subtly creeps up on you. Like the subtle acceptance of the fact that protests now result in shootings. And like I said last night, like what business does Antifa have counter-protesting a mask protest? The only reason they're there is because it's right-wing groups. It has nothing to do, well, I mean, it does have something to do. Because, I mean, Antifa are not what they claim to be. They are stooges of larger political forces. I mean, I think that's become more and more evident. Whether it's an actual, you know, whether, whether it's an actual concrete relationship or not, that's what they're essentially doing, is what I'm saying with that. Um, but uh, the fact that they feel the need to counter-protest a group who's protesting government mandates, a primarily anarchist group is there, but they're just there to fight. They're just there because it's a right-wing event and they feel the need to not just make their presence known, but escalate the conflict because their entire goal is escalation. And this is another example of why it's difficult for me to be around people I know these days, even people on the moderate left. A lot of people will pitch that line that it's not a group, it's not an organization. It means anti-fascist. It's not an organized group. They're heavily organized. They even have their own little branches. And this isn't new to me because the problem is, too, a lot of people only heard about Antifa in the last year and a half. I've been following this stuff my entire adult life. Like I go like I remember Crime Think, which I think is still around, but it was Crime Think. You know, I, I had a friend who got into like bread and roses as a teenager and not now that now that's the same exact thing, but there's a lot of overlap there. So all of these different groups, like I, I've been familiar with them for many years, and Antifa in particular, because I mean they've been protesting black metal shows. They've been trying to control what art is acceptable and what's not for at at least fifteen years, and I've been aware of it all along. I've been paying attention to this all along. So it's very difficult when people have just been introduced to something in the last year and a half during a time where everything is heavily, heavily distorted and politicized. You know, I've been following these groups. I've been paying attention to these groups for a long time. So I, I do feel that I speak with some authority when I say this is a, an organized group, even though they have these like little branches and it's fairly informal, they operate, they're, they're organized, you know? And I mean, I'm not even going to make that argument anymore in this episode. It's, it's just simply a fact. And anything else is a distortion, but 
I saw last year where it became like one of the arguments became whether or not this is even an organized group. And you have very moderate leftists who really, you know, they they know nothing about it. And, and on the right wing, too, you know, it's like a lot of people on the right got introduced to the idea of Antifa in the last year and a half because Antifa finally began interfering in what they care about. But if you've been involved in underground music, underground culture, chances are you're more than familiar with them going back over a decade. And so you have people who are recently introduced to an idea, recently introduced to these people, the idea of these people, and they're trying to tell you what they are. And it's like, for me, none of this is new. But anyway, just the fact that it's like they felt the need to go confront anti-mask protesters and it resulted in a shooting. And the guy who got shot was a proud boy, a well-known Pacific Northwest proud boy. And I mean, like, I don't know any proud boys, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Like the closest I've ever come to a proud boy was I used to hang out at this bar near my house. It was like a place where I could go and there would never be, there would almost never be anybody I knew. And one time there, there was this, I think I mentioned this cause you know, I'm, I'm obviously obsessed with Fran Drescher always have been. And, uh, there was a, a girl at the bar sitting at the bar with a friend who looked a lot like Fran Drescher. So needless to say, like, I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God. She was a little bit thicker, which was perfect. Actually. She was like a thicker Fran Drescher. And I, I was just like, I, I never, like, keep in mind, I, I've never, in my life, I've never gone up to women at bars and been like, can I buy you a drink? Can I buy you a drink? I've never been the type of person who does that, but I just felt compelled. Like, I mustered up the courage, like I'd probably had a number of drinks. And I went up to her and I was just like, hey, can I buy you a, I was like, hey, you look, <laughs> I said, hey, you look like Fran Drescher. Can I buy you a drink? And she was offended. Like, she thought it was an insult, strangely. I don't know how anybody... I don't know how, I mean, Fran Drescher is just an objectively beautiful person, but it's weird because like that's come up again and again throughout my adult life. Like, like, cause I kind of make it like a, I've made it like a show of things before, like my love for Fran Drescher. Like I drew a portrait, I've drawn, I've drawn, I've drawn her twice and there's, a, there's an element of humor and fun to it because it's kind of fun to say like, yeah, like my biggest celebrity crush is Fran Drescher. But what people always say is like, yeah, but what about a voice? What about a voice? And I say, that's the best part. You think I'm just totally superficial? You think it's just the fact that she's hot? Like her voice is one of the best parts. But anyway, like when I told this girl she looked like Fran Drescher and offered to buy her a drink, she turned down the drink and she was insulted. But then her friend was like, her friend was like bursting with excitement. And she was like, I love Fran Drescher. Me and my mom lost a bunch of weight using Fran Drescher's exercise videos, which I didn't even know existed. You know, shows shows what a fan I am. I didn't know that Fran Drescher had made workout videos, but just in some sort of cosmic coincidence. And I mean, like, think about that. Like, think about the number of people, the limited number of people who even know about Fran Drescher's videos, her workout videos, let alone use them to lose weight with their mom. 
But the girl with the Fran Drescher lookalike was like, which is funny that she she watched those Fran Drescher videos and she's hanging out with a girl who looks a lot like Fran Drescher. But just the fact that it's like out of all the people I could have talked to, it's like a, a, a woman who looks like Fran Drescher and then her friend lost a bunch of weight thanks to Fran Drescher and was really excited and I talked to them. And like, unfortunately though, like, I, like her friend was pretty and stuff. Like, I mean, that, that should have been like, that should have been a sign that I should have like bought her friend a drink, but it's weird. It's a weird situation to be in. That's not my style or anything. So I just kind of went and did my own thing, but it turned out the Fran Drescher girl, she was the girlfriend of this guy I used to always see in the bar cause he worked in the kitchen and he was like a guy who like never outgrew his like hardcore punk phase. Like he was covered in patches he had big ear spacings. Like the kind of guy who would be into bands like Blood for Blood. Like he, he seemed like an ex-straight edge guy who was still like he, he was into drinking. Like there's, a, there's this whole genre of guy who was straight edge when he was a teenager. I don't know what this guy's background is, but he reminded me of this where I grew up. Some of the people I grew up with where he was, you know, there's a certain sort of guy who's like super straight edge. They're into very macho hardcore like Boston hardcore, blood for blood, you know, and, but they, they eventually, like, they grow up and they start drinking and, you know, doing all that, but they still kind of retain that hardcore guy identity. And this, this is kind of what that guy, that's the vibe I got from this guy. But it turned out the Fran Drescher girl was his girlfriend, which is probably, you know, I mean, my ego says that's why, she, that's why she turned me down is because she had a boyfriend. Aside from the fact that, I insulted her by comparing her to a famous, beautiful woman and probably the fact that she thought I was a creep, you know, but anyway, it turned out this, this does connect to the proud boys because the proud boy, the proud, the proud boys, the proud boys have that vibe too. Like they've always come across, like, even though it started as a joke and like so many things, it's like, you know, it's like the Bee Gees. I started a joke, the song, I started a joke and the whole world was laughing at me. Um, you know, when you start a joke, it easily can become a reality. And that's what happened with the Proud Boys, apparently, where it started as a joke that became a reality. But they kind of have that ex-hardcore guy vibe, too. Like, if you were familiar with FSU, there was this group of hardcore guys, and I think it was the early 2000s, who banded together, and they were like these macho, tough guys. Like, some of them were like wiggers. Some of them were just like guys who had been in the hardcore scene for a long time, but it was all based around hardcore, which is something that like I, I flirted with briefly when I was a young teenager, but it was never my thing. Never truly my thing. Um, but anyway, uh, so like the Proud Boys already have that vibe. Like they already have that like ex hardcore guy vibe. And so this guy who worked at the bar, like Fran Drescher's boyfriend, like I would see him there, and I don't know, I, I didn't, you know, I never really thought about him much. He was just, he stood out though, for some reason. And then I always associated him with his girlfriend who was a Fran Drescher lookalike. Good for him. But then it, around like 2015 or 2016, I don't, whenever it was that the Proud Boys started ramping up and that they became this big target, I mean, and they, they've inserted themselves where they don't belong. I mean, I, I have no love for whatever the Proud Boys are. You know, to me, they, to me, the Proud Boys and Antifa are 
two sides of the same coin, which is why now that like a lot of the more moderate people, like you think about like the, the protests and riots last year, where there were a lot more moderate people or relatively moderate people participating and encouraging it because they hated Trump's Feld or because they liked Trump's Feld or this and that. But we can see now that the, the dust is settled and the moderate people are, you know, back to doing what they kind of normally do with a, with a little more heat on it, you know, a lot more heat on it, like I've been talking about. But still, like like what I'm getting, what I'm getting at is, is um, that now we're at the point where it's just like Antifa and the Proud Boys skirmishing constantly. Like whenever there's a protest, it's Antifa and the Proud Boys skirmishing and it keeps resulting in gunshots. But around the time that the Proud Boys first got on everyone's radar, I don't, this could have been 2017, I don't know exactly when it was, but like th this guy who worked in the bar, this like ex-hardcore guy with big ear spacers who had a Fran Drescher look-alike for his girlfriend, he was a Proud Boy. He joined the Proud Boys, which is perfect. Like he was exactly the type of guy I imagine joins the Proud Boys, an ex-hardcore guy who doesn't agree with like the lefty side of punk, you know, so it made complete sense, but they targeted him heavily. And like, by that time he wasn't working at the bar, but people were like taking pictures of him without his permission and putting them on flyers, calling him a Nazi, which as far as I know, he's never done anything. Like he's never, I, I don't know that he's ever expressed anything that outrageous aside from just simply supporting this kind of right wing street squad, the proud boys. But sure enough, like people were taking pictures of him. They were, he, by then he was working for, I think a landscaper and they contacted his employer trying to get him fired. And he might've been fired if I remember right. They at least tried. They posted flyers all over his neighborhood. And I was like, wow, that was that guy. That was Fran Drescher's boyfriend. And as far as I know, he's like, he's one of the only proud boys who's been identified in Olympia, but there was this whole campaign against him where they were trying to ruin his life. And I don't know that he still has that girlfriend. I don't know if she's weathered the storm and stayed with that guy, but, but still, you know, it was just significant. That's like the, that's the only connection I've ever had to a proud boy, which isn't much of a connection. I tried to buy his girlfriend a drink because she looked like Fran Drescher and her friend, it turned out lost a ton of weight. Thanks to Fran Drescher's workout routine. <laughs> But so that guy's like the only one I've ever, you know, had any direct knowledge of. But anyway, it's just, you know, they're two sides of the same coin and it makes sense that they keep meeting up. They, they're, they're magnetized toward each other. You know, Antifa and the Proud Boys are magnetized toward each other. I personally think Antifa is more harmful. Maybe that's my own bias. I think it's fairly evident, no matter what you believe. But belief is the problem in this or so-called belief because you can see where it's like there's a certain sort of person who will hear that this proud boy i think he's a leader in the pacific northwest he's from portland he's been in the news a lot he's one of the more one of the more public figures and like a lot of proud boys he's not a white guy he's not white i don't know what he i think i think he might be uh like pacific islander or something but he's not a white guy and you know uh, the proud boys have propped up a lot of non-white people because they do get called. And that's obviously political because 
they get called a neo-Nazi group, which like at least describe them accurately. Like they're clearly not a neo-Nazi group. No matter what you think they stand for, they're not a neo-Nazi group. So be accurate, at least be accurate. And I think in response, the Proud Boys have propped up some of these non-white guys specifically for that reason, because they can say, well, look, our, our chapter leader here is, is Pacific Islander. They had a black guy. Like the, I think the head of the entire Proud Boys network was, I think he was like half black or something like that too. See, I, I don't even follow it closely. It's not like something that I'm even very interested in at all. Just kind of like when they show up, when it, when it happens, I kind of, I pay a little bit of attention. And today, naturally, I'm like, well, somebody got shot. Like last night, I, I, I was talking about, oh, there's a protest and a counter protest planned tomorrow in my city, which is not a big city. This is a small city. And uh, sure enough, this Pacific Islander guy got shot by Antifa for having beliefs different from theirs. And, but the whole like finger pointing white supremacist accusation, like they feel no dissonance when they shoot a non-white person because there's been this whole academic undercurrent that has become increasingly mainstream on the left that whiteness is a state of mind. And there are articles about this. There are papers about this. This is not disputed by some of these institutions that, that you can be a white, a non-white white supremacist. And so like, even though these non-white guys have ended up being some of the mo most prominent proud boys, triple P prominent or PPB, not triple P PPB prominent proud boys like even those these non-white guys have become prominent proud boys they're still seen as agents of white supremacy because of this internal logic that has been created and gone unchallenged in academia and it's that's filtered into just the way the mainstream left even views it so they still feel like they shot a white supremacist. But what a lot of that comes down to, and we see this again and again in politics, where you're a minority who we need to protect and prop up until you disagree with us. You know, that's a very common trait in the modern left is you're only a minority. Your skin only matters. Your culture only matters. Your cultural and ethnic upbringing only matters if you agree with us. And we'll shoot you. This guy got shot. I don't know what led to it. I don't know what he was doing. But you can see where, like, the logic of most people on the left will be, oh, he was asking for it. He deserved it. Whether he was doing anything in that moment. Because, you know, if, if he was physically assaulting somebody, like, if somebody shot him because he was in the process of physically assaulting somebody, you know, that's a different story. While we've seen where people get shot for no reason, like I don't, I don't know, basically what I'm saying is I don't know the, the exact circumstances that led to him being shot. I know there was a confrontation. He was shot. We've seen where people get shot for nothing in those situations. And we've seen where people get shot defending themselves. 
So I, I have no idea. I have no way to make a judgment. But you can see where without even knowing, there is an impulse to say, oh, well, he deserved it because he's a proud boy. Duh. Even though this protest was not necessarily an invitation I mean, nothing about this protest, the way it was framed, which was purely an anti-mask, anti-vaccine protest, which is part of the right-wing platform, but nothing about it was inviting conflict. But, I mean, you know, Antifa showed up and a guy got shot. And the response a lot of people will have is along tribal lines, which is that, oh, it doesn't even matter what he did or didn't do. He's in the other tribe. He's in the enemy tribe. Therefore, there's no, there are no real rules of engagement. It's just, he deserved it. And I've already seen, I've seen commentary like that already. You know, I, I, could, I could speculate that people are going to respond that way already, and I, and I would be 100% right. But I've, I've seen concrete commentary along those lines that he deserved it. I've in fact, I, in fact, looked at some comments I did my occasional look into the comments and saw that there are people who are actually, they wish that he would have gotten killed. I've already seen comments that say, oh, because he got shot in the leg or something. And so I've seen where people are like, man, too bad they didn't get him in the head. That's where people are worshiping death right now. They are worship. They're, they're acting like they're all fighting death. Coronavi, this or that. But they're worshiping death. And if you're going to worship death, you have to be damn well sure of what you're doing. Most people don't have what it takes to worship death, okay? But they're doing it. And they, they wish this guy had died because he's a proud boy who doesn't agree with them. And, and you know, I, I probably wouldn't even like him myself, but I don't need to spin it that way. Because that's the reality. Is like when I see the Proud Boys, I don't think, yeah, dude, hell yeah, dude. I've known guys like that my entire life. And even when I have interests or, you know, aspects of my belief that line up with them, those are never my types of people. Because the Proud Boys, to me, they kind of fit into that, that branch of the right wing that is on one hand doing something good by strengthening their masculinity, sometimes physically, you know, kind of taking that on, but it's very, they're overcompensating too. But that doesn't matter in the context of this conversation, because I'm talking about just a guy who got shot over nonsense. One way or another, it's a bunch of nonsense. Nothing more to say. We'll see if any more information comes out. But the, the thing is, these shootings happen, and they become more and more common in the last year and a half, year. And we just kind of move on from them. We might hear a brief follow-up, but we've just kind of gotten used to the fact that protests result in shootings now. Things are so heated that we've just we've accepted that that's a part of the deal now. But I, I wanted to mention something I realized I made a mistake yesterday when I talked about a famous South Korean monk, Buddhist monk. I referred to him as Song Chin. His name is Song Chol. Excuse me. Makes me feel like an idiot. People are going to think I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's funny in and of itself. You know, where it's like, 
everything I said about him was true. Like everything I said about Song Chol was more or less true. But because I was referring to him as Song Chin, it's like it makes me sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Meanwhile, it's just a name. What I was talking about was was spot on, like like my at least what I remember reading about him. But it's so funny how like getting the name wrong, it, it, it goes back to like that recent episode where I, I said that a certain Danzig song or a version, a live version of a Danzig song was on an album that it's not on. And that makes me cringe. Like it makes me like feel like I don't know about my own hobbies and interests. Like, oh my God, like people are going to think I'm a fraud. People, those phantoms are going to think I'm a fraud because I got the wrong album for that live version of a Danzig song. You know, it's the same exact feeling when I realized, oh, I was referring to him with the wrong name. But I run into that constantly with Buddhism in particular, with the names, with the different terminology, the lexicon. Because you figure it's like, if you study Buddhism, it's like there are multiple foreign languages, some of them archaic. And... You know, I'm lucky if I remember what the Dharma is. Hey, Batty. I'm lucky if I remember what the Dharma is. I'm lucky if I remember what Satori is. So I'm very bad with the terminology, but I do feel comfortable with the concepts. And I feel like that itself is, is Buddhist to its core. Like the idea that all of these words, all of these languages, all of these names are placeholders. And what matters is the idea. But I've run into it with Buddhists, actually, where it's like they want to get into the, like they've memorized the terminology. And good for them. Like, I do that with some things. I'm bad at that with other things. But it's just, it's just funny to me that, like, because I got his name wrong, I'm like, oh, God, I'm, I'm, po I'm a poser. But Song Chol, like, I recommend looking into him just even at a glance. He's a fascinating guy. And I, when I read about him a couple years ago, a few years ago, whenever that was, I felt a certain kinship for him because, you know, I had that experience climbing a mountain in Korea and then reading about Song Chol, who, you know, what he said, like I, what he has said has resonated with me. But reading about the fact that he isolated himself in the Korean mountains and surrounded his hermitage with barbed wire so nobody could get to him. That's amazing. And that austerity, because that's the thing, is like a lot of people don't like the austerity of Buddhism, which I believe is one reason why it's been packaged. It's given it's it's been given this pillow. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think some people might need that. If that if a, if a soft if, if Buddhism with softer edges makes some people's lives better, that's good enough for me. I don't think it has to be a certain way. I think everybody has to have their own entry point with anything. But like the idea of this Korean Buddhist monk, this master, isolating himself in a cold mountainous hermitage surrounded with barbed wire, that kind of austerity really goes against our idea of Western Buddhism for sure. Like let's not follow your own, <laughs> you know, surrounding your hermitage with barbed wire is not follow your bliss, though, as most people understand it. But yet, to me, it is. Like, to me, that is, um, what's the word? I, I don't even have the word. But it's glorious. Like, to me, when I read that, when I was like, he surrounded his hermitage with barbed wire so nobody could bother him, 
I was like, there is something so glorious about that. And that is my Buddhism. Not that I consider myself a Buddhist, but that is my Buddhism. That's not the whole of it, but just the idea of doing that <laughs> resonated with me. And not in a cynical, not in a mean way, not in a like, I hate people, I'm a misanthrope. Because there is that sort of experience that I've had where it's like, oh, I, I sometimes love people more when I'm not around people. But it's a delicate balance. Because sometimes you'll, you'll go through, especially if you have taken a spiritual path where you're like, I'm, I just feel totally in harmony and I love everybody. I even love the annoying people. I even love the people I don't like. Because you can love somebody but not like them. People experience that with their family. They love them, but they might not like them. But I experienced that just as a whole, like, and, and it's, it can shock people and they can hide from society and then cultivate these feelings of love for everybody and everything. But then when you go back into society or when you're around people again, they're irritating, man. They're irritating. You'll be like, oh crap, like I, I forgot how irritating people are. I forget all of the ways that people can rub you the wrong way. I forget all of that dissonance that exists, even, even with people you love, even with people you like. You know, when you go back into it after you've removed yourself from it and convinced yourself that you just love everybody, that's really put to the test. And that's played a role in my own isolation as well. I mean, I mean that actually kind of describes the reason, like I was talking last night about, you know, making a conscious decision to isolate myself even further right now, the last couple months. And how part of that is because it does make it easier to love people. It does make it easier to... Yeah, just love people. Why even why even try to break down that word any further? Why why try to break down that concept any further? So it's like I I love people more right now because I'm not seeing every little thing they're saying. Like because this event happened in Olympia, because this proud boy got shot in Olympia by somebody from Antifa. If I were to get on Facebook, for example, which is my main connection to people in this town, you know, like well what I mean is it's like most of the online connections I have to people I know in Olympia are through Facebook. And if I were to get on there, I would probably see a lot of people talking about this because it happened in town here. And because it happened here, people are going to have very passionate opinions. And I can already tell you what they would say. I can already tell you who would say what and how they would say it. And I wouldn't be just creating phantoms in this case. I bet I would be 100% right. I know exactly where people would stand on it. I know who would feel the need to even say something at all. And I know how they would say it. And it would be incendiary. It would be callous. And they would be saying he deserved to be shot because the Proud Boys don't belong in our safe little perfect liberal community. What's amazing about living in a, a liberal bubble like this, and somebody could say, like, you should move out. Well... I'm a West Coast guy, and I'm a Pacific Northwest guy. 
Olympia is a sweet spot for me. Like I, I actually, I really deeply love Olympia. It's, it's right between Seattle and Portland. It's roughly halfway between Seattle and Portland where, you know, most of my family lives in the Seattle area. Most of my closest friends live in the Portland area. So I'm not going anywhere. But, and you and I wouldn't be finding much, it wouldn't be much different in Seattle and it would be just as bad, if not worse, if I lived in Portland. So Olympia is kind of a sweet spot because it's a small city, nature, you know, you're a five minute drive from nature, pretty much no matter where you are in this town. It's a beautiful place. But one thing I experienced when I was way more social here, when I hung out with a quite a, a large number of people for a number of years, all of them very on the left, you know, because this because it's a liberal bubble. Ever the Evergreen State College. A lot of people came here to go to the Evergreen State College. Like a lot of the people that I know in Olympia came here to go to Evergreen and then just stayed here. But even the kids who grew up here who didn't necessarily come here for Evergreen or go to Evergreen. If you grow up here, there's a good chance that because this, this is such a liberal bubble that you're going to be much further left if you grew up here than you would otherwise. There is kind of a redneck element on the edges of town. Like once you get outside of Olympia, people are largely, I mean, not, not, I, I would have no way of breaking it down like percentage wise, obviously, but there's a lot more conservatives. There's rednecks, there's blue collar people. Like once you get into the outlying towns, like the smaller towns, the more rural parts outside of Olympia, you experience more of that. But everybody I've known who's grown up in Olympia tends to be, if not on the left, pretty far radicalized on the left. And it's normal to them because they grew in, they grew up in a liberal bubble. But one thing I found, and this is, this is going to be true for any social group, that's a thing. I don't mean to say that this is a leftist phenomenon. But the amount of like scheming and goss and malicious gossip people destroying each other socially, like so much of that was always going on. Like so much of that was always going on in this community when I was more, and, and my only, and you know what, my only connection to that was through alcohol, honestly. I liked people, even loved people who were part of all that, but it's just, without alcohol, I don't think that I would have tolerated it as much. But it was just, it was nonstop gossip, nonstop demonization of former friends. And some of this was certain individuals, but it shows you that the power that certain individuals can have because they in turn influence other people and they, they create a currency. Like I've, I've talked about this before when I talked about gossip, how, you know, even if somebody isn't predisposed to malicious gossip, all it takes is is somebody who somebody who's kind of dominant who uses that as a currency and next thing you know an entire group of people use that currency and it's not limited to one group of people you're going to find gossip you're going to find i mean trust me if there was a group of people out there who weren't prone to gossip and backbiting you know I'd be like, hey, can I be your friend? You know, I'd be chasing those people down. Because like I said, even Buddhism, like I said last night, even Buddhism, you see where political factions form and different branches of Buddhism 
commit acts of violence against each other. That's what happened in South Korea after the war. Buddhists were violent toward each other because of political beliefs. So it's like, if that happens in Buddhism, you can just imagine that gossip and backbiting that goes on even in the monastery. So there's no, so I'm not trying to say it's limited to one group, but my experience in Olympia, like talking specifically about that was filled with that. So it's like people don't even like each other. Like these people who are part of like the same political faction, like oftentimes they don't even like each other. It's some sort of marriage of convenience for a lot of people. But um, now I can just like, I, you know, this is a great example of why I'm glad that I'm detached from people. Because I don't want to see people who I otherwise like. You know, my, my time with them might be over. I think it is in a lot of cases. Like I said, I think you can look at your adult life sometimes similarly to the way you look at growing up, where you kind of understand that, oh yeah, in elementary school, these are my friends, but they might not be my friends in junior high. And you, you might just nod to each other in the hallway. It's like, there's kids that I hung out with a lot in elementary school but after puberty, we didn't really have anything in common. And you'd see each other in the hallway and you'd always say like, what's up, dude? What's up, dude? But you wouldn't hang out. You never made plans. And then in high school, the pe like by the time you get to high school, the people that you hung out with in junior high might not be your friends anymore either. But hopefully the bridge is there. Like I had a friend that I was really good friends with in elementary school. and we But we stopped hanging out. And uh, it was fine. You know, we just we just really moved in different directions. But then years later, he had a birthday party, and I hadn't been to his birthday in years. It was junior high, like you know, when by that time birthday parties are more like the boys wander around causing trouble. You know, just getting into trouble. You're you're not a little kid having a little kid birthday party. You're kind of on your own. It's just basically you're hanging out with a bunch of your friends for your birthday. But he invited me to that, kind of a last-minute thing. He's like, oh, I'm having a birthday party tonight. You want to come? And I came. It was, it was really funny because, like, I went into a room at his house where I'd, be, I'd spent tons of time when I was a little kid. And I saw, like, the list. I saw the list of, of people he had invited to his birthday. And there was a list of people that he, he was planning to invite. And then there was a second list that said maybe. And I was, <laughs> I was on the maybe list. So like he had this list of people that he really wanted to invite and apparently some of them didn't show. And so he called me because I was on the maybe list. And you know what? Like it wasn't a blow to my ego because it made sense. It wasn't personal. It wasn't that he didn't like me. Like I was at least on the maybe list, but it was like we hadn't hung out for years. But it was so funny to find that because to somebody that might like crush their ego. But this was like a kid like there was there was no reason to be offended. And another the funny thing is another person on the list Another person on the maybe list was another old friend who I was still friends with, but this friend didn't really hang out with this kid anymore. So it was kind of clear like what, like the maybe list was basically like, these are old friends of mine I don't really hang out with anymore. And so like, maybe I'll invite them to my party. But, but still the fact that I even could go and we had a really fun time, like seeing that list just kind of made me laugh. It wasn't offensive to me or anything. If it was a girl, I probably would have been crushed. Like if I went to a girl's birthday party and like walked in and saw like the the invitee list and I was on the maybe list, that probably would have like just, she might as well have taken a high heel and just stomped my, you know, my, you know what, my toe. Yeah, my toe.
you know, if it was a girl, I probably would have been devastated to see myself on the maybe list, but it was an old friend, you know, and it's just like, yeah, we don't hang out anymore. I haven't been to your birthday in four years. You know, I'm not going to take offense to, to the fact that I was a maybe. But anyway, like point being like your life goes in phases like that. But when you're an adult, it can be so hard because the thing is, you know, yeah, some kids have a really hard time making friends and I sympathize with that. That's got to suck. That's got to suck to not have any friends. Like I wasn't popular, whatever that means. I, was, I know that I wasn't popular, but I, I, real, I feel very fortunate that I was able to have friends because that's so important just to somebody's development. Because it's not all, as I've talked about extensively, it's not all fun. Even just the combat of friendship is, is so crucial to your development. And it helps you develop thick skin. It helps you know your boundaries with people. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I kind of see adult life similarly. Where it's like there's there's a tendency for some people as adults, like it's so hard to make friends and you end up like you either make friends at work, like after college, unless you have like this steady group of friends, like unless you stay in your hometown and still hang out with your childhood friends or unless you still live in the same town as your college friends and like maintain a group through them. It's very hard to develop a group of friends as an adult and people continually talk about it. I see people talk about this all the time. I hear people talk about it, how difficult it is to make friends as an adult, which is why they have like meetup groups. Like I worked with a guy who he had friends, but he, he was wanting and he, he, he would like, he used to ask me like how to meet girls. He, he was really, really nerdy. And I, I hate to say it, but he was really annoying too. He was like one of those people who asks you questions all day that he doesn't even care what the answer is. He's just trying to like start a conversation. And I don't mean questions about you, but like question. Like, like here's a great example. This is an actual question he asked. He asked me about like replacing part, like his washing machine broke. And he was asking me about like replacing a part, which like I don't know anything about fixing things. I don't know anything about... I am terrible with any kind of like guy stuff. Like I, I can't even change a tire, you know? And he was asking me about like fixing a part in his washing machine. And he was like, well, can't I just replace, can't I just use this part as like a cheaper alternative? And I, I just said like, I don't know. I was like, I, I would probably just replace it with the exact same thing. Like I would probably just try to f buy the exact same thing that you need to replace like that makes sense to me right that makes sense to me right like you should probably buy that part you should probably buy an identical version of what you what broke i mean this is insane <laughs> like thinking about like this question and he he like didn't like that answer and it, not, in a, not in a combative way but this is just like him in a nutshell and he i, I sat next to him and he would do this all day where he would ask you things like that and then one day he asked me about like meeting girls and he's like, well, what do you, what do you do on a date? And I was like, get a drink, like ask her to go out for a drink. That's, you know, and this guy, he was not a partier or anything, but he drank, like he, he would drink and he, I think he smoked weed too. Cause like one time I saw him, I walked by a, a head shop, like he didn't smoke cigarettes and he, he was in a tobacco shop, but all the tobacco shops sell weed pipes. And I saw him looking at the weed pipes, like buying a weed pipe. So I know he smoked weed. 
can't even imagine, like even that whole washing machine conversation, I can't even imagine what he's like when he's stoned. But um, I knew he smoked weed and like he, he would drink, he would have a drink and stuff. So I just said like, you know, ask her out for a drink. And he was like, what? He's like, doesn't, wouldn't that just be telling her I want to sleep with her? And I'm like, no. I mean, maybe, yeah, like the, like that is the sort of atmosphere for casual hookup culture. It's to get a drink, like you break the ice and it's kind of a neutral setting. And like, I'm not a fan, like to me, some of the most miserable dates I've ever been on are when like it's a first date and you meet up at a restaurant for food. I'm very sensitive about like eating and food and like how I come, like how I look. Like, I just, I don't know what it is. I, I'm just very, I'm very sensitive when it comes to like eating in front of somebody and restaurants. Cause like, I prefer to eat alone. I prefer to eat alone. And that says something about me because everybody else throughout history is like, you, you should always eat with other people. But I like to eat alone, even in my house. Like even when I'm with somebody I love, I kind of like going to separate corners. I'm not a dinner table guy. So I wasn't going to tell this kid, like, I, you know, I'm coming from my own point of view here where it's like, I'm not going to tell him like, oh, go to a Thai restaurant and talk about curry. Because to me, that's the most uncomfortable I've ever, I, there was a time where I did go on a date with a girl who I had met when I was blackout drunk. I, I talked about her on here because she was the one who was a recovering heroin addict. She'd grown up Jehovah's Witness and had never done a single drug and her coworker gave her an Oxycontin and she became addicted to that. Like she had a headache or like a pain and her, her coworker gave her, gave her an Oxy and she became addicted. And next thing you knew, she was embezzling money from the company she worked for to fund a heroin habit. Like she went from zero to a hundred miles an hour and then she was, um, she did a year in prison for embezzlement. And this is a girl who was like a totally innocent Jehovah's Witness who early in her life went from never having done anything bad to trying Oxycontin, you know, and then she's a heroin addict doing a year in prison. So I went on a date with her. I met her and she was sober, but I met her when I was blackout drunk and then like a friend helped facilitate a date. And I realized it was the wrong thing the second I was there. I realized it was the song. I realized it was the wrong thing before I even met up with her for the date, because like she was texting me nonstop and like sending me memes, and like goofy, goofy memes that I didn't find funny, which is fine. But it was it was one of those things where it was like I was like, oh yeah, this is the problem with texting, because like she's asking me questions. Like we'd already we'd already agreed to go on a date. We'd already met, actually. Like, we'd already met. I was blackout drunk, and I have no memory of it. There was a photograph of, like, a group of us standing together in an alleyway, and that's why I was like, who's she? Turns out I met her. I was blackout drunk. But anyway, you know, she was texting me so much. She was asking me so many questions and stuff, like like first date questions. And I just wanted to be like, hey, you know, this is the stuff that we need to talk about on the date. Like, we're not going to have anything to talk about unless we have incredible chemistry we're not going to have anything to talk about on the first date because you're asking me all of the first date questions through a text. So I knew, I knew something was wrong already there and she was nice and everything, but it was really weird to, to be on a date with somebody who was on one hand so innocent because she, she still seemed very naive because she hadn't had like, 
Like she was missing the whole spectrum of experience. Like, like for me, like trying drugs, like I never got into heroin. I've never tried heroin, but, and I've never liked opiates, which is weird. Like it's, it's interesting that I've never really, I've tried opiates for, they've been prescribed to me. I've tried them recreationally. I've never liked opiates, but, but anyway, like for me, it's like there was a whole spectrum of experience that led to me trying drugs and getting into trouble and doing all that stuff. But you could tell with her, it was like there was still something very naive and innocent about her because she she never experienced that spectrum. Like she went from being completely innocent and naive to being an ex-con and recovering heroin addict, but she was missing everything in between. So she still came across like, like a kind of like a, a, like a, like a innocent girl, like a, like a young girl. Like it was, it was just really weird. And so she had this like hardened experience. Like she talked about playing cards in prison with these like really tough women. She was like, all we, all we do all day is play cards in prison and talk. And I'm just like, man, this is intense. And she had kind of taken on like a prison tone. Like, you know how somebody kind of like street talk, like she kind of had that like prison tone. So you could tell that it kind of like molded her in a way. But she was still largely innocent and naive to like the entire spectrum. It was just that she went from zero to a hundred. And I don't, I've never been to a hundred. So here I am at like 50 miles an hour that I gradually built up to. And so it just, it wasn't, it, there was a big disconnect there. But like, anyway, just we met up at a Thai restaurant and I was sweating profusely. I think it was in the summer. And I think I had walked there. I can't remember what it was. There was, in addition to just being anxious, like there, I feel like there was some reason why I was sweaty. And so I was just sweating profusely, like eating curry and talking to this girl about like this weird life she had lived. And I, I guess my entire point is just that <laughs> I don't think you should go on a first date in a restaurant, but that's like the flexibility that getting a drink gives you. And I don't drink anymore, so I wouldn't even know what to do now. But um, like getting a drink, that, that gives you a range of motion. Like if it's a first date and you're just getting to know somebody, you have a drink or two and you can go your separate ways. And if you like them, you can go on a second date. Or if you're interested in trying out, you know, testing it further, you can go on another date. If you do want to hook up, going out for a drink is perfect. But it also, you can go get something to eat from there and it's going to be less awkward because you've already had that drink. Like you've already, you've already started your night out with a drink or two. Again, and that kind of seems like a win-win because... Like, like whenever I've gone on a date with a girl, like a first date, they're always, if they, if they like, like you and everything, they're always like, well, I'm kind of hungry, but that's like, that's like the, the, the beauty of like getting a drink is that you can then go get something to eat. But the idea of like meeting at a restaurant is fucked. But anyway, this is all because this kid, this kid that I worked with, he was always asking me about things and he asked me about like what to do on a first date. And he couldn't get it through his mind that like a, getting a drink was not just like making an immediate advance on a woman. I was like, that could happen. That is, that is how some people treat it. But it's just, it's the easiest icebreaker. It's just the simplest thing you can do. But he just didn't understand it. And he was always asking these questions that he didn't seem to like the answer to. And so he'd ask you something about like how to replace a washing machine part and I would just say, I don't know anything about that, but I would probably just replace it with the exact thing that broke. Doesn't that make sense? And be like, well, yeah, but I think you can maybe do this. And it's like, well, 
you know more than I do. But there's that sort of person who does that, where it's just kind of like they're talking just to talk. And I mean, I, I lost track of this maze of thought a long time ago, but it, it kind of go, goes back to the idea, though, of like, I like this kid. Like, when I look back on that kid, I like him. He was, he was a good kid. Like, he did nothing wrong. He never did anything wrong. But it was like being trapped in a room with him all day, every day, where he's asking you questions just to basically make noises. You know, it, it it made him really annoying. But because that kid isn't in my life anymore, like I look back and I'm like, what a nice kid. That nerdy, nice kid who was totally clueless about dating, clueless about everything. He was, he was you know, a gamer. He was this nerd. You know, like when we hired him, he, he was like, well, me and my friends built our own server for Warcraft. You know, he was like one of those kind of guys. But I was just kind of like, you know, it, being away from someone like that, you go, oh, yeah, he, he was a really nice kid. You know, and, and so it's like being away from people sometimes gives you that. You know, being distant from people sometimes makes you appreciate them more or just gives you a bigger picture look where you're like, that's a nice person. I have sort of a general human love for that person. I'm glad that person exists. But when you're trapped with that person, you go, oh, my God, does this kid ever shut up? Because it got to the point, I mean, this is how bad I can be. It got to the point with him where he would ask a question and I just wouldn't even look. I wouldn't even look in his direction and I would, I would just pretend I didn't hear it. And, he, and then he would go, huh. He'd go like, hey, do you know about G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-G-
And I mean, I, I kind of admire that, that he was willing, like he wanted friends, he wanted a girlfriend. And despite his awkwardness, he was willing to just be like, I'm going to go to this like singles dance. And trust me, this guy was not a dancer or anything. And he's like, I'm going to go to this like this hiking activity group where like adults who are looking to meet people go, you know, but it's like that just shows you how hard it can be. And like I was saying, like you go through life and there's people that you spend time with, but it can be so hard to it can be so hard to meet friends, especially a group of friends, which is what a lot of people are looking for, especially women. I noticed like women feel that something is missing from their life if they're not part of a group of friends, especially if they don't have children. Because if you have children and you're involved in their lives, friendships form along those lines. Like you become friends with their parents. Like I look back at my mom and a lot of her friends when I lived in my hometown were my friends' moms. You know, you form your own tribe because you're both, your kids hang out, you know, you do a lot of things together. So it's like having kids kind of adds that to it where it's like your, your peers now are other parents. And even if you don't connect with them, it's like you do have this common ground because you want what's best for your kids and you're very involved in your kid's life. So that's a common interest. But if you don't do that, it's like it's very difficult. Like it's hard to find that sense of community, especially in our world today. And I found that women in particular have a very difficult time with that. And from talking to my friends, they've echoed this where it's like, if a woman doesn't feel like she is part of a community and in the absence of like children or family or even with it, maybe like there's this tendency to, to get that need met with a group of people. But the problem with that is you become like really attached to it. And like I said, my experience with a group of friends as an adult was filled with like gossip and innuendo. And there was a lot of good to it. I don't mean to make it sound like it was all bad, but there was this vicious riptide to it. And it happened again and again. And from knowing people, that happens all the time. Like, I think that's just an inevitability with a group of people. Like, there's always a chance that that can happen. But people have, a, for all these reasons, like, people have a very difficult time moving on from friends as an adult because it's so hard to make friends that I think people have a very difficult time moving past friendships as an adult, even though it's built in growing up to where... From year to year, from school to school, you're not necessarily going to maintain the same friends and you're going to potentially make new ones. But as an adult, you have this tendency to like really hold on and be like, well, I don't know how else I'm going to make friends. Because what, like you can make friends with your coworkers, but that becomes a whole problem. You know, you think about like when you're working at a place, it's very easy to like build this sense of community. And if you spend time with your coworkers outside of work, you have this common ground and this common bond, but that usually doesn't last. Like as soon as you stop working with those people, even though you feel like you're like one organism at the time, when you stop working with those people, like you're kind of like, you know what? Like they were my friends in high school. They were my friends in junior high, but we don't work together anymore. And even though, and that, you know, and of course there are exceptions. There are like individuals that you will hang out with. But chances are, like, you'll move past that when you no longer work together. It was a time in your life. But I guess just what I'm getting at here is just the way that people are like, these are my friends as an adult. And if I don't hold on to these people, I'm not going to have any friends. And that's worse than having friends that might have issues or there might be problems within that group of friends. You know, it, it's, it seems worse to people to not have any friends 
than to have friends who might cause you grief or you might outgrow. Because the idea is like once you're an adult, you don't outgrow anything. But the reality is you do outgrow people and not, and that's not like a, it's not necessarily, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that those people aren't valuable. It, it, it really, it, it has nothing to, it's no judgment of them whatsoever. It's not even like outgrowing them in the sense that you outlevel them. It's just that you move in a different direction or you realize that that was a period of your life and you're not going to hold on to that period of your life. So I've already been through all that, you know, I've already accepted all that. But it's further reinforced by what's going on. You know, it's further reinforced. Like when I hear about a proud boy getting shot by Antifa in Olympia, it actually makes me happy that I don't have access to what people are saying. Because I don't want to see what somebody I, I know says and think, God, that's stupid. You're stupid. You know, I don't want to think that way about people. So in not seeing that and not having that window into their mind and not having to sit there with a group of people and hear them talk about this stuff and not speak up or not say my opinion because it'll go against their narrative, you know, this all makes me love them more, believe it or not. So that just, I think this situation kind of just outlines my approach to that, where it's like right now... I don't want to have a window into what people are thinking about these highly polarizing issues. I don't want to see them fume over nonsense. And so in that way, you know, you can be Song Chol. Got his name right. You can be Song Chol. You don't have to surround your, your hermitage with barbed wire. But even if you do, that's not necessarily a statement of disgust about other people. In a way, that might be the very thing that makes you feel more connected to them. That might be the thing that makes you love them more. And I relate to that heavily. I'm not going to surround my house in barbed wire. I don't think this neighborhood allows it even. We have some sort of covenant that I'm not happy with, but we have this covenant. This is my mom's house, so... She's in this neighborhood that has a covenant. They have all these rules of what you can and can't do to your house. I don't think that they allow you to surround your house in barbed wire, but I don't need to. I don't need to go camp in the mountains. I don't need to go build a cabin in the mountains and surround it with barbed wire. But even if I did, sometimes that can actually emphasize your love. Sometimes that can actually make you feel more in harmony with people than if you were actually around them. And right now, what's going on in our world right now is the best evidence of that that I've ever experienced in my life. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. 
say.